Okay, I know what you're thinking. My God, Emery, what'd y'all do this week? Well, that what? ain't us. Uh, no, that ain't us. We're not. That ain't. We can't do that no more. No, that that ain't <laughs> us. You're listening to God of Fire. It's the newest single from the band Fit for a King. They're a terrific band, and their new record's called The Path. And The Path it comes out on September 18th, and it's their sixth studio album, which is crazy because I remember thinking of them, I think we said this before, but I think of them as a new band, like these young whippersnappers up and coming. But they're on their sixth studio album. Uh, and this band's got a lot, uh, they got a lot to them, a lot of story and a lot of lore. And they, they are one of those bands that have really been able to make a story and a name for themselves. And they're worth checking out. So um, they do a build your own merch pre-order bundles at fitforakingband.com that's worth checking out and there's uh, there's way more music coming out from them leading up to September 18th so be sure to hit the follow button on Spotify so you don't miss anything now that album The Path is out on September 18th but you can go listen to that track this track uh, God of Fire now in full and we're off and rolling that's all the ad we had the only ad we've got for this week Toby what else do you want to talk about something you want to promote pump talk about what could I promote? Uh, <laughs> it's always something. <laughs> uh, well, I've been getting a lot of good feedback for my uh, emails again that I send in uh, the BC Club. So if you're not in the BC Club, make sure you go join today because you'll get a nice, lovely email from me. And it's just some of the stuff in my brain. It's kind of funny. Some of it's a little serious. Some of it's a little funny. I get to, I, uh, what was it, last week or the week before, Matt? I found a picture of you, and then it looked exactly like Pee Wee Herman. Did you? You probably didn't even no, see the email. No, I didn't see it. You didn't see it, but it—I mean, your face looked exact. So I put a picture of you and Pee Wee Herman in the email, <laughs> and just said that time that Matt sounded like looked like Pee Wee Herman on the podcast. So uh, it's just stuff for my brain. So yeah, if you want to, you everybody needs a little more Toby in their life. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only person that, that says she doesn't is my wife. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you don't. No one trusts her. I married her. What, yeah. I mean, if I married her, you can't trust a more person. Doesn't speak well. A, a of person her. that would marry me, you don't want to trust. There's a what little, is wrong with them? No, I agree. I mean, that speaks well. Not I tell you, two people they're not. You know, you probably shouldn't trust is Toby's wife and me, just for the obvious reason of our deep right. association with you. Is I, I agree with, with you on that. <laughs> but if you do want, if you're one of those fucked up people like like me and Toby's wife, then and you want a little more Toby and you want to read his weekly email to the BC Club, there's a little loophole right now. You can join for free in the last few days of our free trial. So we've been, had mm-hmm. people in the BC Club and they'll be needing to confirm their membership or bouncing on they out until next time. But if you want to do that, I think there's still time to do it. And uh, if you're in the free trial, we got a Patreon now that we that we use for this podcast. So if you're a Patreon person, maybe just check it out on its own merit or come through the free trial and if you want to stick around patreon it is but the th- the big thing to promote really is that uh i'm only a man update pre-order is crushing oh, yeah. it this experiment is going super well we're remaking and improving and updating uh one of our best records i'm only a man and selling vinyl on it and we're doing those songs week by week this week is can't stop the killer so i'll play you some of that next week at the top of the show but oh, go to yeah. emorymusic.com and we appreciate that very much it's a great thing that we have this product and vinyl and it's popular enough and we can make music and we can sell it it's awesome so so check that out and uh that's all i got for the top of the I, show well, i got something i want to talk about go before for we bring on our guest today um so i had this thought so Matt, you, everybody probably listening even knows that I grew up in a very small backwoods church. Uh, we know, you know your papa, of, blah, 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 blah. My papa. <laughs> Have I talked about this before? My papa. He was, he, he, they, they know. Uh, 
but when I was growing up, uh, there was this thought uh, this conveyed, uh, this idea conveyed that uh, you had to be really strong and never deny Christ. And like, there was always this imagery of like, what if someone held a gun to your head and you? They said, "Do you believe in Jesus Christ or not?" What will you say? I don't. I don't know if that happened in your uh, Presbyterian Greer, Greer first prayers or whatever, but that definitely happened <laughs> to me, and I felt that that feeling. And uh, I always carried that with me. I was like, "What?" You know, at, at the moment, I was like, "Well, I would just have to, even if it meant my life, even if it meant they blow my head off. I would, you know, I will not deny Christ." And then as I got older, I was like, that sure does seem silly. It seems like I, I think God would be okay if somebody's going to shoot you. You're just like, yeah, you know, I'm indifferent. <laughs> or, or you could just say something. I don't think God would send you to hell for that now. Back then, I thought you, you would go to hell. If you said, if you lied and the, and the you know, person with the gun still killed you, you would immediately burn in hell forever. I mean, but I crossed thinking, my fingers when I said it, you know. Yeah, you can cross your fingers, can't you? Well, yeah, can't, I just have my fingers wink? crossed. What are you talking about? Like, yeah, like what if I'm on my knees with my family and there's this guy with a gun, he's going to kill us all, and I just look at Jess and wink and go, no, we are atheists. <laughs> uh, it's, it's so funny. That's, I mean, I really did grow up with, with thoughts like that. I mean, that's real, really true, denying Christ, right? Let me and, give you but, another one I saw on a tweet. And I'll let you continue right there. I heard an uh, argument on Twitter yesterday that having <laughs> that having sex with a condom is not actually having sex as a technicality because you know you're not really you're touching. Not touching some, skin yeah. To skin. So here, here's how it goes: like this: if I was wearing gloves and washed my hands, <laughs> did I really wash my hands? No, you no, didn't. of course not. <laughs> you didn't. There, if you had poop on your hands and put gloves on it and then wash them, most if, I, well, if I, mean, I wash I my hands with gloves on, everybody knows I did not wash my hands. Yeah. Point that's proven. A, that, so condom man. sex is not. It's there all you good. go. All yeah. good. All right. Do it. Do it. All right. All you legal age uh, Christian It's folks. all about the technicality. Single folks. God. Yeah, it's all got, about the technicality. God. And God respects the technicality. He that's the all technicality. he cares about. <laughs> yeah, that's all he cares about. <laughs> it's just the loophole that yeah. God allows. Loves it. My God. It's the same as anal sex, right? You didn't have Best I mean, loophole possible. My God, I mean, if it's not vaginal, anal is just, I mean, if everybody's into it, that's it's totally all right by God. I think that was the plan. Right. But uh, one of the things I was thinking about is the, the denying Christ was told to me like that, but what if it's actually, the we're seeing it right now, Christians deny Christ. Like, for example, how many people understand what folks are saying when they say Black Lives Matter? Like, I'm not talking about the organization. Get, uh, I'm talking about actual black people. Their Black people's lives matter, right? But what if you aren't saying those things? Like, what, what would Jesus say? Would he say that black lives matter? Would he understand the context and why people are saying it and what they're doing? And I was thinking, how many silent voices there are or people that would just deny that because they immediately go, well, it's, it's just organization or it's, there's ulterior motives or it's bad. Like, would you really, isn't that a form of denying Christ? Like you there, and I, that's just with this, you know, what is happening in this moment right now. Um, think about all the times that people are denying Christ and not being loving, not mm. being forgiving. Uh, you know, just seeing people for what they are, uh, projecting or what the what side they're on, red or or blue or whatever it might be. I've I've just been thinking about that term of denying Christ more and more, and how many Christians are denying what Christ actually is. I think it's not it's not just saying I believe in Jesus. It's I think it's way deeper than that, and a lot of people are denying Christ. Well, you think that Black Lives Matter is like some kind of referendum on on. In a way, because I'm sure both, I mean, you could make the argument that not being willing to say Black Lives Matter is a kind of a denial of Jesus. Is that what you're saying on some level? Well, I'm, like, I'm saying Jesus was Jesus would say, 
uh, I would give my life right. for Black Lives Matter. Like you know, like I, I I'm not going to hold tightly to my life or to my skin color or to anything. If my brother and sister are hurting, then I give my life to help them. Yeah. Right, but you know that's what, what I'm mean? saying. So some people would say if there was a Jesus and that you could deny him, I mean that that's a, a valid point for some to say to to not be willing to say Black Lives Matter is a denial. And then on the other side, I'm almost sure that most people that think the opposite way feel like even uttering the the phrase those three words in order is a denial of Jesus itself. So it's kind yeah, of sitting right. right on the spot where it's clearly a Jesus type thing to value lives mattering of a, of a marginalized group. I mean, it's the most Jesus thing possible, yet a lot of Christians are probably scared to death, even though they go, ah, I think black lives probably do matter, but I surely I can't say that out loud because they, right. you know, they, they would loud, see that a... as a denial of Jesus. They would say it's right. a denial of Jesus. If they said they, they probably fear if they posted black lives matter on social media, they might go to hell for it. They might think that. I mean, or, or or what about the other thing? Aren't you denying Christ if your your brother and sister are sitting to the left and right of you on the pew, and you need you sh- you feel confident you should say something like that, and you choose not to because you don't want to ruffle the feathers of your church folks? Like, you yeah. know, I mean, like how, how many like uh how many you know pastors and people in the congregation go? I'm just not going to mention this because it, it just isn't worth talking about. It, I know. Uh, where this person stands and this person stands, and if I bring up how I feel about Black Lives Matter, for example, whatever it is, uh, then it's just going to ruffle feathers. So I'll just stay silent. Mm-hmm. But yep. even though you believe it, yeah, you think right, Black exactly. Lives do matter. You should say, like that is a denial of Christ because you are you are not telling your full truth or the whole truth what you believe, and you're choosing not to because the people around you might look down on you. What if you don't get to go to your church anymore? What if they don't like you? What if they say something bad? What you know, all all those things. I, like I'm just getting to the point where I'm just seeing more and more of how how small church made God, and now it's way bigger and it's coming to a head. I mean, yeah. it's really coming to a head. I mean, it, it, it's exploding from the inside. Overall, I would I would distance everything from Jesus in the sense that I don't think Jesus was the guy that was about what your public proclamations were one way or the other. It is the, the what, what I take, which I really was disturbed by the amount of people saying, "If I don't see you post X, then I know you're Y." I don't I don't really appreciate oh, don't. that on on on. On the on no. the Black Lives Matter side, like I'm watching and I didn't see you post enough things, and here we go, and I, that's not great. And then obviously to not be able to say Black Lives Matter is unbelievable. Also, like, so my take on the Jesus part of it would be: I don't think your public proclamations are of any fucking consequence whatsoever. Right. About, how about that's not important. Well, not no, no. I agree. Your public proclamations are always detrimental to the the good of a movement or something like that. My my bigger point would be if people were sitting around talking about, uh, man, do you see the riots and the looting and all this stuff? That's all this is. It's just and you and you just don't say anything. Or what if you actually did in that conversation talking with two other people? You went. I don't think that's a good description of what everything is. I think mm-hmm. that this actually is a moment where we have to change some things. That mm-hmm. is. So hard. That's the hardest. It's so thing hard to, to have right, that conversation right. yeah. with your father or your brother or Correct. your sister or your wife or your church folks. I'm t- I'm talking about that, not a public proclamation. I stand for Black Lives Matter. Right. I don't I don't know if I ever trust those people. Anybody's preaching about something to you, you just any preaching. I'm not even talking about Christianity. Any preaching starts getting real scary to me these days. Yeah, because that I person so. has an agenda. 
Yeah, they're, they're talking so. a certain way. It's a little bit louder. They're in front of people. Why do they need to be in front of people? What yep. does it mean? What do they do? They're well, leading yeah. you? Yes, and a good version of that, a good way to confirm that is when people's responses to people's public proclamations slams on social media. You'll often see in the comments people that like it, what do they say? They go, preach. Yeah, oh, I know. Like they say, you know, like they, it's acknowledged that what you're, you know, but I, I don't think, I wouldn't be proud if I'm saying something. I mean, I don't really want people to think I'm preaching. You know, you, I, right. I know what they mean, but it does trigger that response for that reason because it is in that realm often. It's and the more it's that that way, and preaching works. You're saying something yeah, a certain way. That's, yeah. I mean, it's the same thing as a newscaster talking tonight on the news. De- danger in uh, you know Greer, South Carolina. You know, and so you go, ooh, danger. And, and I mean, that's what happens when you start preaching. You speak a, a certain way. You're you're not just normal anymore. Yeah, you're, like, evo- you it, yeah. you're evoking some kind of feeling and setting them tone for, hey, this is serious. Well, so that was the opposite me. of preaching in some way, but it's that you're right. You you put on a, a character in order to deliver information from a yeah, the trusted part POV, but that one's like, oh, I'm not preaching. I'm, in fact, I'm so calm that you have to believe everything I say. <laughs> right. And I was coming it was from, from Nicaragua. The news is just right. in, and here we go. And I've been, you know, and it's that's you have to believe it because I'm coming. I am the the person delivering it calmly. And the preacher's a different, got a different outfit on of how he is persuasive. But you know. Yeah. Speaking of church, uh, I am so happy to have Ryan Burge back. I'm telling you, this is one of my favorite guests we've ever had on the pod, and now we have him back, and uh, he is a data guy. He's a pastor and a data guy, which sounds like, I mean, how does how does that brain live in that skull? Be, you know, loving the Lord, loving data. Mm-hmm, that's great. Uh, you know, everything he says is so fun. So but You cannot love both. You, can, you can't love le- data and the Lord, you're saying. He do, he proves that you can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's an academic and a pastor, and he's just got a turbo brain. He's I love his pace, yep. and so uh, always happy to talk to him. Hey, Ryan. Hello, hello. Hey, everybody. What's going on? All right, what's up? We're super careful about Corona, so even though you're not in, near us and you are pretty social distance, you don't have it, right? Because just in case, I don't even want to talk to you. I do not. I'm not the Florida Marlins. <laughs> I have coronavirus through half my organization right now. What was the deal with them? They they knew that they had it and still kept on anyway, huh? Yeah, they, they oh, voted they to all play that night. Yeah, and they might no way be really sick. They they I think they knew it when two people had it and they had a yep. team meeting and said you all want to do this right and everybody said yes yeah. and then half the team has it so they don't. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, so they just thought they would. They can't play until Sunday, and they might have to rearrange the rest of the schedule because they might be short like five games at the end or something like that. Man, it's kind of like they were they were they thinking like chicken pox, like just if, <laughs> if we all get it, then we'll just be past it, and then we don't have to worry about it. <laughs> I guess, but there's a there's a pitcher for I think the Red Sox who got it, and his heart got inflamed, and he's missed like thirty days of baseball because oh, his no. heart his cardiologist oh. won't release him to play baseball yet. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah, that's the scary stuff. Is just, I mean, it's oh, there's a level of this that's not scary about getting sick and whatever. We'll just get over it. And but the the level of what's unknown about it, if it was lab created and there's other tag along things in it, or weird, even if it's not lab tampered, but it just there's things that right. happen that are two year and three year effects. I mean, that you never know. Well, that's what's so terrible about it is the data you don't know. Like, if you go on Twitter, which is the worst place to find out about coronavirus, by the way, uh, it'll be some people just saying, hey, it's fine. We all are going to get it. You got to get to herd immunity. You'll hear all this stuff about it. It's not that 99.9% people live and all this stuff. And then the next, the very next tweet will be uh, lung scarring, 
Uh, I've seen uh, you. Your kids will be autistic. You'll have Alzheimer's. You know, and I'm like, how does anybody know anything with the data? Ryan, that's one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on here because yeah. you are so great with data. Yeah. But the data. This has been. I mean, just not even talking about church or anything. This has been like you're a data guy. Hasn't yeah. this been like just the biggest cluster ever of yeah. just misinformation? Well, yeah, you know what it is. It's like it's like the American public seeing how the sausage is made about how science works, like in real time. Like usually, like all this stuff happens behind the scenes before a drug comes out. There's all these studies that kind of happen behind the scenes to treat this thing. And now we need the information so quickly that we're, you know, a new study will come out today that says one thing and then the next day something else and it'll go back and forth, back and forth. But what a lot of people don't realize is like all the science is always like that in the beginning, like studies are all over the place. And eventually you sort of like, you know, the, the variation narrows down and you start Mm -hmm. figuring out what really works and what really doesn't work. And then we, you know, present that to the public and treat them a certain way and the, now the, the sad part is the, the American public is losing faith in science because the, they're doing the process kind of in public, right? They're putting right. stuff out visibly. And it's like, no, this is exactly what you want science to do. It's just you don't see 90% of this stuff because you don't care about 90% of this stuff. So, you know, it's frustrating for me because it's like we all do it like this. And you look at social science. Like if you look at like there's huge debates in social science that go back and forth for years and years and years before we settle on a conclusion don't, you know, disregard the conclusion because of all the mess that took to get to the conclusion, right? Like that's part right. of the process of science. And unfortunately, Americans aren't trained to think empirically and scientifically. And so all this for them seems very um, uncertain and scary and and they're anxious anyway. So it just sort of creates this really perfect storm of terrible for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Well, Ryan, we're glad to have you today. This is I'm sad in some sense because this is right around the time when we would have been hanging out, and we you were one of the people that we had confirmed for the BC conference yeah. this year, which was yeah. going to be a blast. And uh, I had a good time talking to you. I was just telling Toby and Reva about conversation we had. We sp- spoke on the phone probably an hour um, mm-hmm. talking about the con and what we we're going to do and just personal stuff and enjoy you very much. I was looking forward to that as well as I'll say this right now to all the people that would have been at the BC con. We're sorry. Um, I, we don't have plans to redo that at this time. We will when we can. But, uh, you know, that's where we are. But we're glad to talk to you today in, in lieu of having you actually speak at the conference. And I don't even remember what it was we were planning on speaking or doing. But we'll, you've been doing so much data and interesting stuff about church and COVID. Yeah. Um, yeah. And your attitude with science and data, we just love so much. So we just thought we would yeah. go through some of the stuff that, that you've been thinking about communicating uh, yeah. you know, lately. So, but how have you been? Good? Good, man. I haven't been to work in over four and a half months now, wow. which has been wow. sort of weird. Like I haven't even been to the city where I work at in four and a half months. I, I used to drive 2,500 miles a month and I drove 200 miles in April total. So like my life has been like upside down in a lot of ways. I mean, it's summer for me anyway, cause I'm an academic, but it's been like the never ending summer. And I want to go back to class. Like I, you know, people like I would love to never go to work. I'm like, uh, it's been four months. I need to go to work. Yeah, I need to have right. office and friends and colleagues and students and structure and and all that stuff. So it's been a very, it's been like a weird like four month odyssey of like floating around trying to figure out ways to keep me occupied. Yeah, it's well, not over, right? Like you, you're not going back into the class and teaching, are you? We are, we are. I mean, the plan you are now. Yeah, it's it's getting it's getting a little hairy though because the the union's pushing back pretty hard right now because cases are rising in our area again. Uh, but right now I'm teaching two classes uh, in person. Uh, they're very small. Like we split them. So I had a class of 28. We're doing 14 in lecture on Tuesday, 14 in lecture on Thursday. Everyone's wearing masks. There's only 12 or 13 desks in the classroom. I'm behind plexiglass with a mask on. <laughs> 
Wow. Yeah, you don't need a school. Like, you just go to a pawn shop and have class. Then. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be weird, man. I mean, it's and the thing is, like online education, like I we teach a master's degree online. We have huge numbers in our master's online program. It's the thing about that is it takes all the fun out of teaching, which is like getting in front of a class and lecturing and kind of letting things happen and discussion goes back and forth. And all you get is the grading in an yeah. online class, which is literally the part right. I hate. Like, I wish I could never grade again. And that's all it is. So um, it puts us in a really weird spot. Cause I like mentally, psychologically, I want to be back in the classroom, but then there's all this threat and all this concern and this worry about, you know, what happens if we do go back and someone gets sick, right. if I get sick, you know, so it's, it's really, I mean, even, even I, the data guy is still very much unsettled by this whole thing because my mind says one thing and my heart says something else. And I don't know how to reconcile those two things very well. Yeah, that's totally the case. I mean, I think everybody is, I think you put that well. I love the image of you behind plexiglass, like a drummer in church. You put the teachers, <laughs> the, the teacher cave now. <laughs> and it's still scary. That's the, that's the thing. That's what I'm saying. Like, even though, you know, like, you know, probably more than a lot of folks just about the numbers and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But like the idea is just the the simple tiny mis- you just go oh wait I forgot I, I I touched something or did something or you know somebody sneezed and and then you got it and you brought it home to your family or anything that just feels so scary it, it feels like you you did yeah. something wrong even though you didn't mm-hmm. and you know what colleges are cruise ships on land you know mm-hmm. like they're, yeah. they're you you could not create a more ideal circumstance to share COVID and get an epidemic overnight I mean we're we're kind of all joking with each other like. So when, what's the last day you think you're going to be actually in class? And we think like September 15th, October 1st, you know, Labor Day, like it's going to be, I would be shocked if we make it through the entire fall semester and still are doing any face-to-face classes at really? all. Really? I, I totally yeah. agree with that. I think, y'all, yeah. so y'all both are, y'all both think there will be outbreaks at most schools. Oh, I think, I think the Miami Marlins made that clear. Like they have all yeah. the testing, all the money, all the structure, all the doctors, all the PPE you could ever ask for. And they mm-hmm. still had a huge outbreak and half the team got sick. We're putting 18, 19 year old kids of poor impulse control together who want to be social, want to drink, want to party and don't like following the rules. It's not right. going well, and I don't want to disparage my students at all. I love them. I love what I do. But listen, we were all 18, 19, 20 years old, and we all made some really dumb decisions because we just can't see the bigger picture because our brains haven't fully developed at that point. So right. it's 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 going to go wrong. There's just no way it's not going to go wrong. It's just how long it's going to take and what the threshold is going to be before we bail. Um, yes. That's really a big question. Yeah, I think there's going to be that all the way from preschools to private schools all the way up to colleges. It's a di- it's slightly different than the public schools, but I'm unclear on what people's strategies are because they don't really tell you. It's, a, it's more of a PR thing. But one of the factors in the college deal is is money. So they have a lot of pressure to ha- to say they're going to have school and even have school to to collect tuition and stuff. I mean, there's real pressure there. So if they ha- are forced to close from a pa- an outbreak, I'm sure they're happy to do so because everybody's already paid tuition and arrived at campus. So they have an actual inc- – I mean, I'm not trying to be cynical. I don't know about your school or anything. I'm just saying the administrators – if they say there's not going to be this, then they're going to have a big tuition hit. So now it's like, trust me, we're going to figure it out. We're going to do the best we can. Like all the incentive on them is to have class. And then in September 15th, when there's nine cases, they shut it out. Well, what can you do? But the tuition's yep. paid and it's done. So that's part of, I think, what's going on there. Whereas that's, the I mean, public school is right, the opposite. You're right, in the head. you're right. I mean, that's it's a bait and switch. It sounds mm-hmm. terrible. And I know it's not no one's saying this publicly, but every president of every college in America is saying, let's just get them here yep. and we'll keep them here for as long as we can. And then we'll send them all back home at some point when That's things right. get bad. Yeah, we but- need them. And here's the reality. 
what needs to happen is the federal government needs to bail out higher ed so we don't have to do this. They need to backstop us for these refunds. We had to pay $4 million back to students last year and we don't have any endowment. Like we are literally running on zero all the time. So we can't float that kind of money and we can't float that money twice. You know, so we're putting people in an unsafe situation because we need the money because the government's not doing its job right now. And that is to bail out places like K through 12 and higher ed. We need that money so we can make better decisions unfortunately people can't put those pieces together and just say, Oh, you guys will figure it out. It'll be fine. And then we're going to have a thousand students getting sick and two or three are going to die. And largely it's because we needed the money, which is a sad reality where we are. Yeah. Those Man. are the complications. And, and the, the, you know, once again, people throwing out data, well, young folks, they don't get it, you know, way less chance sure. of dead. No one's in this. And, but you're right. I mean, probably the data shows no matter what, there's going to be some death. There's definitely going to be sickness, obviously, mm-hmm. but I mean, there's going to be potentially some death and, I mean, here's the other thing. Like, you want to get back to class. So do those kids, though, too, right? Like, they, they probably want to get back to class worse than you, like, just to get out from their parents' house and be Absolutely. in a dorm and do all that again. Yes, this is a classic case of being able to use a little bit of confirmation bias to, that's just too easy when there's fear present. But it's the same as everybody says. Uh, have you noticed how everybody says, I want to get the antibody test so I'll know that I already had it? I mean, I keep mm-hmm. noticing everybody saying that, but I've not heard anybody get it and say, I got the antibody test and I did have it, but everybody thinks, oh, I had COVID in February or something. Yeah, me too. But it's not, it's not true. It's just wishful yeah. thinking. And it's, if you know that, if you can have that in your mind, you just feel better. Absolutely. And so but, that's really what, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an adaptive quality. I've, I've been thinking that confirmation bias lately, it really is an adaptive quality because it gives you some confidence and advantage sometimes. I mean, there's a reason we are so prone to it. It, it oh, has a yeah. function, and but yeah. this is, you know, that's just what it is. Like, you have to make a decision and move forward and then have some momentum. Thus, we have confirmation bias. It's almost good for us in some capacities, but, y- you know, you have to be <laughs> – these are pl- plenty of cases where it's too easy to go, oh, kids don't get it. Oh, I'm sure I had it in January. Oh, I, you know, it's just too yeah. easy to do that, and so, yeah. of course, we're going to do it at, at scale. I'll give you a good example of what I've been seeing on, you know, sort of my friend group and social media and this kind of stuff. All my conservative friends are like, mask or fake. This has all been manufactured. This is all made up. There's Mm -hmm. nothing to worry about. Bring everybody back. They'll all be fine. Right. So rejecting everything to do with COVID. But then my liberal friends are like, I'm not leaving the house until there's a vaccine. And I'm not sending my kids back to school until there's a vaccine. Mm -hmm. Okay. So like, to me, that's an overcorrection too. Yes. Because I have two kids that are six and eight. Okay. They go to a school that's K through three. Um, the class sizes are 20 students or less. Our community has 30 infections right now as a, as a, as a, as a county. So we're a very low risk community. We're in a K through three district. If you look at all the data, kids under the age of 10 are incredibly unlikely to get it. And it's incredibly likely that it'll be serious. And, and almost none of them die. Mm-hmm. And they hardly ever transmit that to adults. Mm-hmm. So we're going to send both our kids to school. Uh, our, our first grader and our third grader. And my liberal friends literally think that I am crazy. Like mm-hmm. I am gambling with the, like there's a 50, 50 life. Both my yeah. kids are going to die. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you, if you're going to believe in science, you have to believe in science. Not when it fits your narrative, like confirmation bias, just what we were talking about. Liberals want to say that everything's dangerous and conservatives want to say nothing is dangerous. And listen, we, our kids are in the probably the ideal situation to test out this theory that kids don't get sick. And if they do, it's not very serious. And they don't die and they don't transmit to other people. So let's do what the science tells us to do 
and not be controlled by fear. And I swear people call me like MAGA online yeah. because I hate <laughs> things like this. But yeah, it's yeah. like, if it, liberals like try to pride themselves on science, but I think sometimes they overcorrect. And so what they say is, Everything the CDC tells us is fake because Trump's running it. Everything HHS tells us is fake because Trump's running it. Everything Trump tells us is fake because it's Trump, which might be true. But listen, it's not all fake, okay? There is some science out there. There's some good data from across the world that shows us certain things. And one of them is that kids are very unlikely to get sick and very unlikely to die and very unlikely to transmit. So guess what? Here's the other thing liberals should think about. We know that kids are falling behind educationally. And we know that poor kids are falling behind even more than rich kids are. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that should be as scary to people as the idea that kids might get COVID. Because you might put 100,000 kids on the sidelines and make them lose a year of education so that maybe two or three of them have a really bad outcome from COVID. And listen, I don't want those two or three kids to die as much as anybody else, but 100,000 kids losing a year of education. And social well, development. In social development for literally the rest of their lives, they will be impacted right. by that. I would argue magnitudes larger than COVID. Yes. So we need to be rational, empirical, and scientific, when not just when it meets our confirmation bias, right? But let the data drive our decision making. Well, the the the, the liberal people. I live in a very liberal place, so I have a pretty good temperature of it in Seattle here. Um, yeah. You know, I uh, for instance, my wife. Okay, I'll put it this way. I don't think science is, is is science is more for liberals like a just a thing they a feather they put in their cap of mm-hmm. of social like behavior. It's not that they actually like or listen to or do science. They just think that mm-hmm. they have science. They think that saying science is part of their bumper sticker. But it's not that they engage in it. It's they engage in whatever the people around them that they think believe in science do. So you go, I'm a liberal, and all my liberal friends who I know are high on science are very scared and this act this way. And they yep. do science by proxy, really. Yes. There, They're not actually yes. – they don't – weigh it or, or or anything like that and there's severe bubbles here like uh, uh i think there needs to be a scale where we could somehow empirically uh, put people on a spectrum of covid uh fear with some real metrics not just how you feel but what you yeah. think is dangerous and what is not i was telling mm-hmm. my wife i think she because she had we have some friends that are looser than us and she's like yep. what, what what i mean what is that what is that? how do they you know and i'm like babe half a lot of our liberal friends think we're that uh-huh. They, they think we're crazy and dangerous, and uh-huh. she and yeah. she and she thinks we're. I mean, surely we're at the fifty percentile. Surely we're the average, middle of the road. And I'm like, no, yeah. I, I I think you're probably on the. I think you're. <laughs> I think I'm probably sixty five percent on that scale where I'm actually conservative, way more than I would be. I mean, conservative like careful, um, way more than I would be predicted on normal things. I'm actually just going along and being even more careful here, just because I decided to do so. She's even more careful than me, and she thinks these other people are being crazy, but they're still probably on the the careful side. And her other friends are so freaked out, they are destroying their fucking minds with fear. <laughs> liberal scared to death they're tweeting things like i want my child and i can't leave the house and i will never forgive the maga people for this yes right. and i'm like whoa yes. and like that that's in her, their brain is like I, I'm, I'm serious i read a tweet like that from one of my wife's friends and i just thought oh my gosh she's the tweet <laughs> said know. we my child's childhood has been taken by people who won't wear masks it wasn't even maga she said people that don't oh. wear masks have stolen my child's oh, uh God. childhood and i will never forgive them that is horrifying <laughs> to me. God. I know, isn't? I mean, oh. and she thinks that's science. 
Yeah. That's what they think. So let me give you, I'll give you, so here's a, here's a little case study inside my mind when I think of something like this. Okay. So I was reading today about kids when the CDC number of deaths, number of cases, okay. Kids under the age of 18, they say there's 223,000 cases of kids getting it. Okay. Uh, under the age of 18 and there's been 787 deaths. Okay. You, you parse that out. That's about one in 4,000 kids who gets, who gets tested positive dies from it. Okay. One out of 4,000. But now here's where the science kicks in. Most people don't think this way, but I've been trained to think this way. I'm telling you right now, the denominator there of 223,000 is not right. Okay. And here's why I know that because we know that lots of people who get COVID as adults are asymptomatic and never get tested. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's many studies that say it's probably four to eight times as many people had it that then we actually tested. Okay. But with kids, you got, I have kids, a six and eight year old. Do you think I'm going to have them jam a four inch swab up their nose to the back of their throat? Unless I'm pretty darn sure they have COVID. Right. No way. Right. So those 223,000 kids are the ones who presented with the worst symptoms that justified the swab, right? I bet you it's orders of magnitude larger than that, the number of kids who actually had COVID and never got tested, probably 10 times that amount, right? So now it's not one in 4,000, it's one in 40,000 kids who get COVID died from it, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think, if you see the numbers, that, by the way, one in 4,000 is like a very small percentage, like shark attacks, like what, you know, like random occurrences. But then you stretch out to one in 40,000 and you go, holy cow, like that's, that's, if you got, that'd be like getting struck by lightning twice in a day. Like that's completely, but you have to think logically, right? And when fear kicks in, like Matt was talking about, you stop thinking logically and you start making bad decisions based on fear, not on logic and rationality and statistics. And people think I'm crazy for saying that, but. No, you're not crazy, but the people, liberal people also have a big problem with the uh, law of large numbers because they like to be, one of their premises that they like to sneak into everything is. Uh, zero tolerance, like not even one dead, like one death is too many, like that mentality mm-hmm. of not one child left behind, like that mentality doesn't jibe well at all with law of large numbers, you know? So they, they get a lot of confusion there, I think. Yeah. Well, it's funny how much they hold on to stuff like that. You're right. It almost feels like the opposite, like the small evangelical, you know, charismatic church I grew up in would, would buy really strongly into this is from Satan uh, coronavirus is evil. It, it's uh, the left or the liberals' uh, evil plan to get Donald Trump. That's like that would be the main thing. It's, it's made up. And then on uh, then uh, so that's on the right side of, from the history of my life. And then on the left side, you're right. Like they, it's like don't really care about science. It's almost a god that they don't really. The same as the person that's sitting in church, not really listening or caring or whatever. But they go because you probably should. Well, on the left, it feels sometimes like well, I probably should care about uh, science and facts and stuff like that, and it works into the narrative I want to create in my life. So they do that, and then the, and then they just fall for the. I mean, anybody listening to the media right now, it's all just fear porn. It's death. It's destruction. It's horrific. You will die. You will die. And if you just buy into that, then that's the only thing you have. You think you will die, but you're right. Like you would, if for example, right, if your kid had some health issues, you wouldn't be sending your kid to school. You're making a decision based on a lot of different. Uh, facts or data that you have about your family, health, what it means, what you've heard, what you've read, all that stuff. It's not like you're just sending you, okay, I don't care. <laughs> Whatever y'all get, you come back with. I mean, and you couldn't do that without the coronavirus. There are real things that could get your kid without the coronavirus. Uh, you know what I mean? Like you send your kids every year to school and this, there's dangers and you have to accept those and live with them. There, I mean, there's real dangers and you 
we live with them. But this is, I think it probably too is that it's so new. Yeah. Um, that every, like you said, everybody doesn't have real clear, so they're just trying to make up their own stuff. But th- there's never been more of a time of conspiracy theories being so prevalent hmm. on like social media. I mean, I see, I can't believe it. I mean, the funniest one now is like I'll be on Twitter or TikTok, which is the word I, I would say one out of every, and it might maybe it's just because I'll sit and watch them for a minute because I'm I'm laughing or I think it's crazy. One out of probably on my feed, one out of every 10 is that no matter what, Tom Hanks is a pedophile and he's giving you clues in all the videos and he's a part of everything and he's leaving going to Greece and he's a pedophile. Ellen is a pedophile. Uh, Oprah's a pedophile. All the elites are pedophiles. It's, it's hard. And I mean, I bet if you got every it, single one of them, there might be somebody that did something bad. But the idea there is that they're all working together and there's this they. That is creating this, and that's what I think. A lot of people, maybe I, I didn't even know, because you were talking. Uh, one of your articles was talking about, uh, let's see, what uh, I wanted, how uh, even white inve- evangelicals' uh, coronavirus concerns are fading faster. Mm-hmm. And and when you when when you were writing that and the data, were you it, tell us a little bit about it? Because it seems as if they because they think God's strong and God's good, and this is evil. What, what's the reason why white evangelicals' coronavirus concerns are fading? Yeah. So let's talk about even. Okay. So I grew up evangelical. I'm a pastor now. So I'm not like some atheist, like yelling at like people who believe in the sky God or whatever. Okay. Right. So yeah, I'm a Christian too. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, my audience all think like, Oh, he doesn't like Christians. I'm a Christian guys. You have to admit though, to be a Christian, you have to believe in some pretty fantastical things. I mean, you believe that a guy died and came back from the dead or, and then he raised people from the dead and he turned water into wine. He turned one fish into 5,000 fish. Right. Yeah. What's the stats on that? How many people come back from the dead? One out of how many Ryan? Yeah, one out of two, four billion people. <laughs> I don't know how many people have lived. Two hundred forty billion. I don't yeah, know. One out of two hundred forty billion. Yeah, but you get what I'm saying, though, right? Like to be right. a Christian, like Sir Kierkegaard said, like you have to take a leap of faith, right? Mm-hmm. You have to go from like yeah. rationality to irrationality, then back to some level of rationality. Like once you get into like systematic Christian theology, it actually becomes pretty rational and ethical at some point. So, but you have to jump across this chasm where you believe that a guy died and came back from the dead, and that somehow gives you eternal life, which let's be honest here, objectively is weird. Okay. It doesn't follow laws of science or nature. So that means that Christians are often susceptible to sort of magical thinking and other things, right? Mm -hmm. Everything's a prophecy. Everything's tied together things. Oh, here's my favorite. Christians believe that things happen for a reason. Okay. Like to me, that is the ultimate, like opium for your psyche, because what it says is the things that happen to you aren't random. They were planned by God. Mm-hmm. For to teach you a lesson, like your 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 kid getting cancer and dying at two years old was for a purpose, you know, like that kind of thinking right. is actually is a balm to a lot of people's souls. And and the reality is, and this is like studying statistics long enough, you realize this: the whole world is random. Okay, your kid got cancer because some kids get cancer, and it just so happened it was your kid. You know, like as hard as that is for our heads to wrap ourselves around that reality, things just happen. And then what we try to do is we try to make meaning out of meaninglessness, out of random noise, out of chaos, okay? And so all this stuff about the pedophilia and COVID was created in a lab, and this is all a political ploy. People hate the reality, which is that just some random virus mutated from a pangolin or a bat or whatever it is in Wuhan, China, Mm -hmm. and some dude ate it, and he got COVID, and he passed it on. Like, that's a boring story. 
but people yeah. don't want to believe the boring. They want to believe the fantastical. And I would argue that evangelicals especially are keyed into fantastical thinking because they're taught that everything happens for a reason and that prophecy all lines up and all this stuff. So they're really predisposed to believe that this stuff is about something bigger, something cosmic. And one more thing, they're always focused on eschatology, which means the end of times. And if you're in any evangelical church, they're telling you there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and violence yeah. and pestilence and disease. And you're thinking, disease, this is exactly what was foretold in the Bible. This was all planned. This was all plotted. And there's a purpose behind all this. And the sad reality is you pull the curtain back and it's all just randomness. There's nothing behind all this stuff. It just happened. And we have to make sense of it. And, I think and that feels so uncomfortable for them. You're right. Yes. They, they, they're supposed to be a plan. Yes. Like right. stare at the void, right? Like stare into right. the void for a minute and just look at it and go, this is just random stuff. Like make right. sense of randomness. Don't try to assign meaning to meaninglessness. We got COVID. We could have gotten COVID five years ago or 10 years ago or five years from now. It's just random, guys. And we have to deal with the randomness that life hands us. There's no meaning behind it. Just buck up and get over it. But a lot of people can't think that way, right? They're predisposed to thinking a certain kind of way. So they're going to make sense of this. And the sense they make is honestly senseless. So that's part and, of, and then, what, of how uh, we get. Uh, I was, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, Matt. Well, I'm saying this is part of, of, of that is. In in some view, that's part of how we got religions in the first place. Like religions, mm-hmm. plural. Re, maybe somebody's right, sure, but this is partly how we got religions. Was the need to to make sense of meaninglessness? No, yeah, no. So there's which um, so is QAnon, same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. QAnon is just like an evolution. Actually, there's some people who argue that QAnon is the result of of religion declining. I agree America. with that, hundred percent. We had to wow. replace it with something else, and QAnon is that something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but you know, people who study this anthropology who study like the history of religion basically say that when, when groups were small, you could police yourself pretty easily, right? Cause you didn't want to screw over your brother or your uncle or your mother or your cousin. So you didn't steal, you didn't rape, you didn't kill. But then societies realized when agriculture came around, they needed to have more people to grow crops because it was a labor intensive activity. And so when societies got to about two or 300 people, they couldn't police themselves anymore because there's, you know, there's crazy Bob over there and there's a guy who just walked in the village two months ago we don't know much about. So what they did was they created God as a punishment force to say, listen, we're not just going to punish you. God is going to punish you. Okay. And that's way worse. And when he punishes you, he punishes all of us. So if you screw up and you rape a woman or, you know, you have adultery or you kill somebody, it's not going to rain. Your crops are going to die. We're all going to get disease. And that's where all this stuff comes from. And so it created this sort of self-reinforcing cycle where people started acting right because they didn't want to have all these curses upon them. Mm-hmm. And so it sort of held society together. Now, interestingly enough, a lot of those people also think that the reason religion is declining is because government's gotten larger and it's basically taken the place of God. So now who polices us? Well, the police police us. You know, society is now policed by institutions, not by religion, and therefore government has taken the place of God, especially in a lot of European countries, and therefore they don't need God anymore. So, you know, God's basically a big guy with a stick who hits you when you walk out of line. Mm-hmm. And people now, they've been avoiding church, but everybody seems to be going back. Like it was interesting, uh, Jess's mom, who actually had cancer, right? Uh, she was going through chemo right during the beginning. Uh, she was ending her treatment right around the time that uh, COVID really started Real, in like the early March or whatever. 
Yep. And uh, she's just been dying to go back to church, and she just feels uh, – a part of it is I understand the community of it, and I, I agree with that. Like, I, I do think that the one of the worst parts of corona is the lack of community and the mistrust of people. Do they have some sickness? Mm-hmm. I get that totally. And church community is a place where you feel at least some kind of connection and with you know each other laterally and then you know vertically with our God or whatever. But uh, they've been wanting to go back, but has – I mean, would, uh, as churches, did they really shut down – Hardcore. It, it seemed like uh, I kept seeing people going, "No, we're going to have church no matter what because God's good and stuff like that." But did most evangelicals even did they did they avoid it? Yeah. No. I mean, the data is pretty clear that at least ninety five percent of churches closed down. The ones that didn't close down, you heard about. You know, it's like the, yeah, I see. the it's the outliers or what popped up. The vast majority of churches, even very conservative churches, did close down. Pentecostals quietly. You know, stops. <laughs> Uh, why? Because I think at the end of the day, most people are actually understand COVID is real and scary and we need to do things to mitigate. I mean, yeah. even like 75% of Republicans think mask wearing is a good idea now. Like I think yeah. you're hearing from the loud, angry, weird voices on the far right in America today. And you're not hearing from yeah. the mod- moderates don't march and they don't yell on your Facebook, you know, mm-hmm. so you don't right. see voices that much. So most pastors are, at the end of the day, very reasonable people. Even very conservative right. pastors are reasonable when it comes to their flock. And they feel a sense of, you know, like, this is, I got to take care of my people and I don't want anybody to get sick. The other part of it is they don't want to become a national news story when half their congregation gets sick from doing sing-along. You know, so it's a, it's a risk mitigation thing for them and a PR play for them, which I understand. But now um, Lifeway just released some data today that said that about 70 to 75% of churches are back in person now, worshiping face-to-face. Um, from the from the dip down to you know only five percent, so we are seeing. But here's interesting: it's actually staying around seventy or seventy five percent, and it actually might be the plateau. And I actually think it might turn back down because some of these communities are becoming hotspots again. And even our church has talked about maybe going back, you know, not meeting again because we're seeing more in our community. So a lot of people are in my spot. We want to be extra cautious. And even like I said, even MAGA Trump Republican pastors are still going to do the right thing because they realize this is not a hoax. So two, two things there. That's the worst part about it is I, I wear a mask no matter what, wherever I, when I'm, when I'm uh, in a, like going to get groceries or something like that, we don't really do too much, but uh, I really feel like the, the, with Trump, one of the worst things about it is he sets a precedent that you can't like, if we had a president right now that said, Hey, listen, this is the truth. Nobody wants to wear a mask. We get it. They're uncomfortable. They're all this, but just give me a, give me a month of data here. Let's, yep. uh, what if every American, when you went somewhere, you went to the grocery store, you went to work, just wear a mask for a month. And I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll pay the best scientists. I'll do this, but let's just see what the data shows. And then what if the, the masks work? Great. We did something else. If they don't, I'll, I'll burn them all for you. We'll do a big yeah. bonfire outside. And we won't, but, but the, that miscommunication there from our leadership has been so detrimental because that actually adds to the conspiracy theory stuff. Of, they want me to wear a mask because uh, they won't you know, whatever reason, you know, they, yeah. there's a million reasons out there. And then the, uh, but the other thing I was going to ask you, how did that, I don't know if you've done any data on how bad were churches affected financially, like mm. tides. Cause a lot of churches weren't set up online, I guess as much. Yeah. Yep. So um, we don't have any good data on this because we only have anecdotes because most churches won't want to, they don't want to talk about this kind of stuff because, you know, they don't want to look, if they got hurt really bad, they don't want to say that. Right. So right. I read anecdotes that the, the average church lost about 25% of its tithes and offerings in a typical week during the worst of the pandemic. But that's very, that's highly variable based on whether they're a young congregation or an old congregation, right? Old people don't give online, right? They write checks right. In, the, in the plate. Um, I have heard some congregations, they got even more money, uh, which blows me away. Uh, but here's the thing, and this is this is something a lot of people don't know about the PPP program, the Paycheck Protection Program that mm-hmm. Congress yeah. out with the CARES Act. 
it, it gave a bunch, it gave loans to small businesses across America, like $500 billion of loans to small businesses that could be forgiven as long as they were used for payroll expenses and churches were eligible for these PPP loans. So um, they didn't release all the data. They only released the data on, on people that got over $150,000 in PPP loans. That was 10 weeks of payroll. So you're talking about mega churches showed up or larger churches showed up in the data. And I did some analysis and like 665,000 uh, clergy were, jobs were saved through PPP or at least retained through PPP. And we're talking billions of dollars were given directly oh. to churches from the federal government to prop them up, which is, by the way, incredibly controversial, you mm-hmm. know, from a constitutional perspective, because basically your tax dollars went in the pocket of clergy across America, which is exactly what one of the things that this country fought against when everyone came here from the, from, from the New World, because Virginia, you had to pay a tax to the Episcopal Church. And everyone in Jefferson was like, no way. So it's really interesting now that like, that's a clear example of like the founders would have hated that idea. But the argument is, listen, those people need to eat too. And laying them off makes the unemployment crisis worse. It makes the economy worse as a whole. So why do we treat them differently than we treat, you know, the the auto mechanic or the factory worker or the guy working at Boeing, right? They should all be the same. But this battle is going to be fought. They're doing another round of PPP, by the way. So there's going to be more battles fought about this very same issue for the next couple of months because this is a church and state issue for sure. I think there's and, a and real churches are tax exempt often, right? For certain. Oh things. yeah, no. Yeah. And not only are they tax exempt, what's crazier is they have very little reporting requirements. Okay, so there's nonprofits and then there's churches under the federal tax code. Nonprofits have to file a form every year that says how much they raised, how much they spent, and who got salaries. Right. So there's a board. There's transparency. Churches literally have to file one form every five years. It's a one-page form, and they have to report <laughs> nothing else for five years. That is no so crazy. Way. I mean, oh, so. Listen, it gets worse, okay? So um, focus, <laughs> focus on the Family in Colorado Springs, Colorado, was a nonprofit for 30 years, and last year they became a church. Mm-hmm. So now they don't have to report anything they do to the federal government because they were saying it's about discrimination, like employee discrimination lawsuits and things like that. But really it's about transparency because they could voluntarily give you their transparency forms, put them up on their website so you could see how much their CEO makes and their board and things like that. They just, they don't want to report to the federal government how much money they raise and who they spend it on and where they spend it. And I think it's largely because they're not, they don't want people to, you know, see where they're spending the money, which is not exactly where you wanted it to go. I think there's a bunch of things there that frighten me. Uh, I want to see if I can squeeze out two or three of them there. But one of them is, wouldn't there be an argument to be made that taking that money, even from the point of view of the church or Christians, is very dangerous territory to get in bed with the government propping you up in the first place? Because I think it's true of, like, for instance, the states have all these— entitlements and grants and money that comes from the federal government, which make them not be able to resist the federal government. Like Trump can take away money from states because they get grants and stuff to do stuff, subsidies and whatever. So now they're indebted to the federal government, dependent on them. So they can't, it's harder to reject that. And then you'll hear Trump and the governor's fighting over, if you don't do this immigration, I'm not giving this money. I mean, if, if, if that's one reason we have church and state for that. So that, you know, if the government is propping up all your churches even if it's in, they think it's in their best interest, that is giving the government power over you because yeah. there's another one coming. What do we got to do next time? And uh, now there's a system where the, you know the government's helping churches. Even if you're the churches, now you've got you know you're in with the mob on, to some degree there. So it takes away some of your freedom just on on that level, right? Yeah. So here's a funny story about that. Uh, you know, the drinking age state by state used to be all over the place. Some states were 18, some were 19, some were 21. 
And Jimmy Carter came in and wanted to raise the drinking age to 21, but he couldn't tell the states what to do because you can't tell the states what to do because the 10th Amendment. Right. Here's what he said. He goes, we got a whole bundle of highway money here. Only catch is we'll only give it to states that raise their drinking age to 21. For safety. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it was yeah, – yeah. So, they, literally overnight, like, all the states changed all the rules to make the drinking age 21, right? right. So, the federal government had – like, they have this inducement to, like, force the states to do stuff yes. without forcing them to do stuff. And that's the problem with these churches, right? Let's say it's you got to tell us how much you pay your clergy, or let's say you can't, you know, give money to these charities, or you got to use this much money on whatever you got to pay taxes or whatever it is, right? It, it's definitely a scary precedent. Here's what's really interesting to me as a Baptist, though. Roger Williams is one of the he founded the first Baptist church in America in Rhode Island in like 1630. His whole thing was a strong separation of church and state, and he believed that to be true because he thought that the the state would stand in the way of people getting to salvation. Like they would be an impediment to people getting saved. We always think it's like the other way around, right? Like we want, we're worried about, you know, church getting too much involved because we don't want like prayer in public school and things like that. He wanted the the state out of the way because he thought they kept people away from Jesus, Mm -hmm. not the other way around. Right. So it's, it's so funny that Baptists today argue the exact opposite of church and state of what they were founded on because they don't realize the spiritual history of what they were, which was we want government away because government makes it harder for us to evangelize people. And we want to be able to go straight to, you know, straight to people and straight with Jesus to people. So anyway, Roger Williams. And and then also you've got the issue now where when, when, when you realize there's lobbyists and companies and corporatism and all that stuff, and the government is involved in that. And you realize that the companies and the government work together in their own circles of industry and institution that largely don't care about the individual people, yet they pronounce how they're there for them. Now, it becomes clear when you look at the tax issue with churches to that degree and the way that they protect their own and the way the police protect their own and the way every group does that, it's easier to look at religion in that sense, if churches have a loophole so profound like that, it's easier mm-hmm. to just look at them as some giant industry, like tobacco or corporate, you know, thing. Like they're they're at one unit, churches, which is a great tax shield, and it operates behind the scenes in collusion with government and this on this multi billion dollar level as a as as an entity kind of a thing. Like there there's an element there's a slice of looking at it from that frame where yeah. it's just these two giant mega institutions that neither one's interest is really about the common man. Now maybe your local preacher is and the people you pray with, yeah. But when you zoom out you start to just see the big those big things and they are relatively you know, consolidated and consistent and work, you know, kind of work together. I don't, I mean, and here we are down here and we're neither here nor there, but the forces and incentives are kind of all like a mob or something. Like they're not spoken or deliberate or, or, or explicit, but it's, it's no pretty, Quid I mean, I understand quo, it but. too. I wouldn't sign up for taxes if I didn't have to. Right. I'd, I'd, so I'd, I'd need to people exempt. There. It, it, so yeah. so uh, there, there's a real incentive for churches to stay that. And now that you have it, you don't want to give it up, and why no. would you? And and you know you can always use the reasoning behind it. It probably does. You probably are able to give more money to people. Okay, you know so what I mean? you now, probably are able to do those things. So now, if you fast forward from that position a little bit, do we go into the territory as we just spoke of before, where a lot of our churches quote um, some of which were scams, some of them are genuine, some of them are in the middle. We have, but we know that the scam artists are headed toward churches, and we also know that church attendance is down, and we have a bunch of other micro-religions sprouting up like QAnon, every other thing. Uh, imagine we'll have a—I mean, now these same organizations and movements, all they got to do is become churches, like 
I mean, there's a there's an actual incentive for yep. these new movements who might be just just the worst ones ever. Conspiracy. Why, why won't the, all the conspiracy theories become religions and then get tax shielded status and privacy and power? Why won't so that? Yeah. So Scientology is your number one example. Exactly. That, right? Totally. Church of Scientology is is a corporation. I mean, I don't. And they're going to come after me and sue me now or something like that because that's what they do. But they, the IRS, they're going to pull their tax exempt status at one point, and they brought in like 300 lawyers and just pounded the IRS for like literally 20 years, saying you're not going to take away our tax exempt status. And eventually, you know what the bureaucrats said? What do we have to do to make this go away? Like the IRS literally put their tail between their legs and ran away because they did not want to go up against the Church of Scientology. And listen, politicians do not want to question religion. They do not want to become, you know, theological dictators. So churches are churches get this wide berth in American life that people don't realize. For instance, in Alabama, if you run a daycare, like a private daycare, you have to get inspected several times a year. And there's like a 300 page manual. You have to follow all the rules in the manual. If your daycare is connected to a church, you never have to get inspected. Okay. Awesome. Because gets, you know, like wow. they get to operate in this gray area in, uh, in South Bend, Indiana, where Notre Dame's at and a lot of Catholics, they built a huge retirement community for like retired Catholics to go live in with other Catholics. And they appealed, they wanted a tax exempt status for the property taxes for all the condominiums. And guess what? They won because they said it was a parsonage for religious people. Oh, see, everybody's going to take advantage oh, of that. Wow. We have, see? we have so many no good actors that are attaching themselves to charisma personality movements mm -hmm. safety helping people like that's the language of every of all of these movements that are sprouting up in conspiracy theories I blend across that from the right and the left but but you know there's there's a lot of that happening and it's true that uh a few years ago maybe i don't know five or six years ago when we were getting bad christian it was going it was going good i got a lot of advice from people in the church quote world who were suggesting that we should seek to be a church or make this a pastor or call like, you know, like, Oh, you, if you make it that you can just get everything. Yep. So you just yeah. take some, any business or thing that could have, and all the businesses are all pro social now with their messages. And you just go a little fast forward that a little bit. Why wouldn't they just become church of uh, outdoor sportswear, <laughs> you know, whatever their company is or their conspiracy <laughs> theories or your movement or how you're helping people and what your safety movement is. Those things mm -hmm. all can become religions and churches. And then, so but once again, that's just a reflection of the system. I don't even think those people are bad for, no, I mean, if, like you said, if you, can find, if you can get exemptions on your taxes, you should get them. Right. I, I, everybody wants to see like Donald Trump's taxes, but I would imagine he did everything he could not to pay taxes, which is what I do. Right. Me too. Every, you know what I mean? Like uh -huh. I want to pay the least, I want to do the least I have to, I want to keep as much of my paycheck as possible. So I don't necessarily, that's the thing that, that stinks about it is I don't necessarily blame a church for doing that. It's just, you're right. Now it seems like it's probably, everybody else is going to go, oh, because didn't, uh, what's his name? Uh, John on the HBO show, he became a, didn't he get tax exempt church? You know, uh, oh, yeah, John Goodman. Yeah, I know. Yeah, Righteous, yeah. whatever it's called. Yeah, that's, that's a great yeah. show, by the way. Yeah. Gemstones, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Gemstones, yeah. No, but I think that's the problem is that like the rules were originally great. Like they made a lot of sense. They, you know, like they protected. It's called the Johnson Amendment, by the way. It's the idea that churches can't endorse candidates or campaigns. And in return, they get this tax, you know, this tax exempt status and they get very low reporting requirements. But now there are churches, there's something called Pulpit Freedom Sunday. It happens the Sunday before or after tax day every year. And several pastors will get up from their pulpits and endorse a candidate or a campaign, record it and send it to the IRS wanting a fight. 
they want the IRS to come after their church and revoke their ta- or try to revoke their tax exempt status so they can take the Johnson Amendment to the Supreme Court and try to overturn it on First Amendment grounds because they think it's unconstitutional. When in reality, like 80% of Americans think the Johnson Amendment is great. It makes a lot of sense. Churches get this thing, but they can't do this thing, right? They can't be political right. when they get tax exempt status. But there are a few bad actors, like we talked about, who are very vocal, very angry, they have a huge social media following that want to fight. They'll agitate for a fight to try mm-hmm. to get something that really nobody wants, but you know, a few people around them want. And it really ruins the whole system for everybody because it used to be a lot better in terms of following the rules. Is everybody, you be cool, I'm cool, we're all cool if we right. all just follow the rules. And now it's a few people want to not follow the rules and ruin it for everybody. Yes, and so attracting the bad actors is the problem with our institutions and systems. So we you know, and our roles that we design them for with protections, they get that's just human nature. So that's why, mm-hmm. uh, you know, youth ministers attract sometimes the wrong element. Cops, sometimes the, the role and the authority attracts the wrong element. Pastors attracts the wrong thing. Politicians, it selects for the wrong people, the teachers, the everybody. I mean, you, you, that that's just going to happen, and then they're going to take advantage of what's there, and then maybe in the future we have another crisis, let's say three years from now, and at that time the government has to start bailing out the church of of flat earth and giving them billions of dollars or, or whatever. Right. But what sense will that make, you know? Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's that's my worst nightmare, right, is that, like, the Scientologists come, like, hat in hand, like, give us some money, right. or, you know, like the far-right Nazi extremist church of God. Bail them out. Prop them up. Right. Right. Like, I think that's where we get into a really bad situation. And listen, I think if Obama was president during PPP, churches would have not been allowed to take money from the PPP. Mm -hmm. And then churches would have cried about, you know, we need bailed out too. Because like Willow Creek took over $5 million. They had 335 people on staff. And when they applied for the PPP loan. So churches like that. I mean, it's a big enterprise and mega churches needed the money. I'm not going to, I mean, they're going to lay off, you know, 50, 60, hundred people if they don't get this money. So it did right. save some jobs, but it's like, at what cost, mm-hmm. right? Societally, philosophically, theologically, like at what cost are we saving jobs right now? And what are the long-term implications of this? And I don't think they're good ones. <laughs> not to mention the too. money printed yeah. to give them is bogus money. It's going to inflate yeah, our not, currency yeah, and screw us all over it, either way. So not, that's another whole other issue with it. But it's, it's and, and it might just it could easily be just a really poorly placed band aid too, right? Because we're right. Looks, looking like we're kind of hitting this second wave in a sense. And who knows if you, the antibodies totally work? Do you get it? When winter comes back, the, the people that had antibodies that wear, I mean, we just don't know enough data. I, I don't know, but are we, do you think, uh, I mean, is this going to, the same as restaurants, are we going to see a lot of church closures? Have we seen a lot of church closures? And mm-hmm. are, even if the churches stay open, are people going back? Yeah, what's so, the situation with yeah. people leaving church permanently? And you're, yeah, you so do that I, a lot. I think, and we don't know yet because we don't have like long term data on this, obviously. Yeah. Um, I'm, try, I'm trying to get money together, run a, run a survey to see what the heck's going on, but you know, money's hard to come by right now. So here's what we think is going to happen the never attenders are going to never attend because they never wanted to go in the first place. The weeklies and weekly pluses, so like your, you know, your good grandma who goes to Bible study and, you know, church once a week and all that, she's going to come roaring back whenever things get the all clear. It's the people who go like once a month, seven times a year, five times a year. Those are the kind of people, and uh, David Gibson wrote a great piece called uh, the, the Coming Religious Recession, where he basically argued those are the kind of people who are going to go away. Because they, they're like, I haven't gone to church in six months now. Is my life any better or worse for that? Mm, and a lot of them are going right. to say, yeah, it's no different. So maybe I will just stay in on Sunday morning and not go to church. I think you go, what you're going to see is you're going to see the polarization in America. I think you're going to see the, the weeklies and weekly pluses stay exactly the same. 
I think you're going to see the nevers get larger. And I think you're going to see the middle sort of decrease as those middle people go to the never side. What are the so, breakdowns of those, uh, Bob, you know, percentage anyway of the population? Oh, so the people who never attend church, mm-hmm. it's about 35% of people say they never attend church. Okay? Uh, this is the U.S. It, in total. Yeah, in the United States in total, like 35%. Yeah. It, people are shocked by this, by the way, because actually some atheists go say they go once a year. Like that's not a crazy, like 10% of atheists actually go to church sometimes. So you can't break it down on like nuns versus Baptists or whatever. So 35% of never attenders. And then if you add the top two brackets, which are once a week or more than once a week, it's about 25 to 28%. So really you have like a third of America on this side, a third of America on that side, and a third of America in the middle. Uh, and that third in the middle is where all the, all the work is happening, all the actions happening, all the shifting is happening. And unfortunately for, for pastors and churches, they're going towards the never category. There's very little evidence that says they're sliding up towards the more faithfully attending category. So would the you think there would be massive effects if we get to the reality of most people are never, which is a possibility based on what you're describing. And right now, yeah. the, the sometimes and the always make up more than half. But if yep. there's 35% never, that's yep. you know 16% away from being most people never go to church. Would that be a big event in our country? And is it I think, likely? I think, yeah, I think what you see is consolidation of the market, right? So what you're going to see is fewer churches, smaller churches are going to die. So churches under 100 we know that churches who get below 50 people are on life support, basically financially, because they just can't pay the bills, keep the lights on. So they're yeah. going to close, right? And what we know is probably going to happen is the 100-person church is going to become a 50-person church, and then they're going to die. You know, like that's going to be a slow process over time as the older generation dies off and are not replaced. What I think is going to happen is you're going to have a fewer number of churches, but they're going to get bigger as a result. So it's going to be like a, a, a merging process mm-hmm. where mega churches who have resources and have backstops and have endowments and have, you know, all these uh, staff and things like this, they're going to get larger and larger because they know how to absorb more and more people. While the small churches who don't have the praise band, don't have the children's church and don't have the lights and the sounds are going to get smaller as people migrate to these big spectacle churches. So right. you might see a town that has two or three churches that have over a thousand people, you know, a town of 25,000 people. Three churches might be mega churches in that town, but the total number of churches might be dramatically smaller because everyone sort of migrated up to these big spectacle churches, non-denominational, almost always mega churches. That sounds like we're That's, currently farming yeah. for the Zuckerberg and Bezos of mega churches. We're looking for Stephen Furtick. And, That's going to happen. Know, right? That's what I was just thinking, right? Yeah. Like it, th- this reinforces that mega churches are good because they're yes. going to they might last. They're too big to fail in a way. Well, they're, no, exactly they're just gonna, gonna but they're just taking the fuel from all the mom and pop stores, all the mom and pop right. booksellers, yeah. and then take over retail, and then take over medical care, and then you're Jeff Bezos. So that's you know Stephen yeah. Furtick's on that pathway. It'll have to be the most charismatic one, leader with one the pastor most to rule them all. Right, right. <laughs> so hey, I'm gonna turn into to Professor Birch here for a second and talk about theory for a second. Okay, all right. there's something called religious economy theory by thinking Stark. And what they argue is that religion is a product like Nike shoes are a product mm-hmm. or like, you know, dental floss is a product that people go to a place where their needs are being met by the product being delivered. And so religion is quantified in this way. And so what you want to try to do is try to be a religion that appeals to the most people you possibly can without pissing off as many, you know, a few number of people as you possibly can. Right. So if we look at what happens to almost every industry in America, They've gotten, there's been fewer numbers, but the, the, the players that are left have gotten bigger and bigger, mm-hmm. right? So if I'm in the religious marketplace, and I've got two kids, six and eight, and I'm just a free agent. I just want to be Christian, you know, generically Christian. Am I going to go to the church that has 75 people? They're all 65 or older with no children's church. There's no lights and sounds. It's all organ music and hand claps. I don't want that. 
I want to go to the lights and the sounds and my kids can go to, you know, the, the kid depot and go, you know, four trips a year and, you know, have 17 different pastors I can go to. So what essentially those bigger churches are doing is they, they tell you that they're drawing people in who are nuns, who are, you know, marginally attached to other churches. But in reality, I think it's like bathwater. They're not adding water to the bathtub. They're just swirling it around and it's falling in their buckets, mm-hmm. right? They're, yeah, definitely. Not, they're not adding people to the fold. They're literally cannibalizing smaller churches, right. which is exactly what Amazon did or Walmart or Facebook or whatever it is. It's the same thing going on in American Protestant Christianity because that's how markets work is that bigger groups get bigger because it's easier to grow. Once you get over a certain plateau, growth becomes very easy. It's just really hard to get to that, you know, whatever level that is, 500 or 1,000. And so these small churches are getting smaller and the big churches are getting, there are fewer of them, but they're getting bigger at the same time. So I'm going to sign up for a Willow Creek Prime membership. You should. It's it's great. I mean, yeah, it's it's really good. So it's a streaming. (laughs) Two-day delivery is unbelievable. Yes, other delivery is unbelievable. (laughs) Well, also the government would like that if the government is giving money and you have less churches and then the big boys you they get to visit the White House and they, and they yeah, try, I players. mean what there could be something there you know what I mean like <laughs> if you have less pastors and this big time pastor really likes the president but he doesn't talk about it that much but you kind of know and it influences mm-hmm. the Congress I mean that's the way all the churches I went to always went right even though they might not appreciate it from the pulpit you knew you know what I mean like they, they would in conversation or din, you know Sunday afternoon dinner or lunch or something yeah. like that it's just it's so that, that's a, that's a good, yeah. You got a good point there. We're writing a book on non-denominational Protestant Christianity right now. Myself and my co-author Paul Jupe's coming out in probably two years called Bubble Church. That's what we're going to call it because these churches are bubbles. We asked the question of non-denominational Protestants: How often do your pastor talk about politics from the pulpit? Never, like literally never. They never talk about politics from the pulpit. But if you look at them politically, non-denominational Protestants are as conservative, if not more, than Southern Baptists are. Right? Why so is that? Where's, where's that coming from? It's coming from the bottom up, not the top down. The pastors are not preaching conservative, you know, political messages. It's just people who are already there are conservative politically. And you pick it up, you read between the oh, lines yeah. and realize, wow, like there's not a whole lot of Trump voters in, in this congregation here. And if you don't like it, you go, you probably don't go anywhere. Yeah. There's no liberal churches left. And if you like it, you stick around. So like 80% of non-denominate, white non-denominational Protestants are, are Republicans. And so that's creates this. And, and I tell pastors all the time, they get so mad at me. They go, why is my con- congregation not more diverse politically? I go, cause you're not speaking truth to them. You're, 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 yeah. you're, you're a void. You're not helping them think about their opinions. And so what they're doing as a result is getting it from Fox news and Facebook and their friends right. and, the, and the congregation. You, you need to be a voice for them to say, listen, you can be a Christian and you don't have to be maggot Trump Republicans, right? You can be still be conservative and be a Republican, but you don't have to be that kind. The problem is that pastors, especially non, when we talked about what do non-denominational churches want to do, they want to grow. Right. How do you grow? By being as bland and boring and mass appealing as you can. And as soon as you start talking about politics, what happens? You're going to alienate a portion of your potential audience or customer base. So it's just easier to shut up and let people be as Republican as they want to be because that continues for your church to grow, which is the only thing that really matters to a lot of these churches, unfortunately, is more butts in the seats you know, bigger, bigger budgets, bigger buildings and all that kind of stuff. I think there's right. one then, more level yeah. of, of sinisterness to it there in that they, I, I always get the sense when I'm listening to different pastors and, and this isn't just non-denominational, it's just all across the board, even liberal churches and stuff like that. I get the sense that they're very able to just 
close their mind to many things and only do what simply works. So I would say it's kind of like the you know Amazon, everybody else. It's kind of a data driven approach, mm-hmm. like that. So that they they know to avoid politics topically and explicitly, but they also know things if they cover in the message that tacitly support political stuff simply works really well. And so it's yeah. the, they, they they take things that are two two levels upstream from politics because politics is at this really just level of right now and the argument but they'll take things and preach about them and talk about them topics that always work based on their reports and data and butts in the seats are things that actually feed uh you know the political base of you know so that they kind of are smart enough to get ahead of the people and feed them material that then informs their politics all the while saying we don't do politics and yeah. so you know, so that that's kind of once you are once you realize what your base does, and then you you, you play to it, yeah, and that's, stay I, I, avoid I, the blame by not saying it's politics. Don't 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 hit it on yeah, the head. That's, but that's if you're I'm a pastor, okay, so I can think like a pastor thinks. Here's what people don't realize who have never been pastors before: you can be fired at any time for any reason without any legal recourse at all, and most of the time with no severance pay. Okay, so. Your entire life is predicated on you not being offensive. Mm-hmm. So imagine you do say Black right. Lives Matter from the pulpit, which I did, by the way, about six weeks ago. And my insides like literally turned upside down. <laughs> you know, like I was terrified and I heard no one right. give me feedback, which I'm sure wasn't good. Like I'm sure in their minds, like, oh, my gosh. Right. But I'm secure in my job. I've been there for 13 years. They're not firing me because they don't have any other options. But if I was, a, you know, I had little kids and I had a wife and we just moved here from, you know, wherever else. If I get fired, we got to pack all our stuff and go somewhere else again. I probably don't have any money in the first place. So I'm right. going to play the bland, boring thing. And it's all self-preservation. Like mm-hmm. it's hard to be prophetic when your job is on the line. Like people, not to get like preacher wise, but like people hated Jeremiah. Like they yelled at him when he walked down the street and said, who is that idiot? He got kicked out of town. He got thrown in the cistern, right? He was kicked out of the temple because he said things that were prophetically true, but people didn't want to hear that. Pastors can't be prophetic because they need to pay the bills. And the reality is you're getting bland, watered down sermons because people need to keep the lights on and they don't want to tell people what's really going on because they know that's going to get them fired. Mm -hmm. But that's not so much true of the big mega personality church guys no i think you get to like a cult of personality mm. level where you can do whatever you want you're a god yeah. like, like a fur tick or an olstein or a rick warren or whoever it is those guys right. are, they're not going anywhere even if they did they got so much money in the bank it wouldn't matter anyway they can ride off into the sunset well think about it okay like toby knows mark driscoll mark driscoll okay went away for a year or two you know what? he's got another big church in phoenix right now dude bounce right back like all right. these people who have scandals give them a year and they come right back and guess what they had a whole pot of money from their books they sold before they, they never really suffer because of that. They come right back. It might take a year or two years, but once you get to a certain level, you can say whatever you want, but listen, 99.9% of pastors never get to that level. So they're stuck right. in bland, boring sermons because they don't want to get fired. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the bigger your church, the more you, you might attract somebody with some deep pockets and then they'll support you the same way. as like, if you, you play college football at a college, you might always have a job there or somebody, you know, a booster that was wealthy might always help you out or something like that. Mm-hmm. Same way. There's somebody that went to your church. It's like, Oh, I know you had a moral failure, but let me, uh, let you work in my, you know, uh, business here or something like that. Uh, what did, what did all, uh, pastors when they have moral failures, they go into, uh, what is it, Matt? They do uh, consultations, I guess, or something like that. They do, you know, about business or something like that. It's always interesting to me how many yeah, yeah. Me, yeah, consulting businesses where how 
many mega pastors always talk business. I mean, they always are writing books about leadership and business and all that stuff. I'm like, yeah, I, I get it, but I mean, what are y'all doing there? So yeah, the way they take leadership. Haggard? You guys remember that guy, National Association yeah. of Evangelicals, gay, gay sex with the meth and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, there's an HBO documentary about him after he got kicked out of his church, and like followed him around. And dude had a hard time. Like he it was out of money. He lived like people like would let him live in their house for six months because they had nowhere else to go. He like hung door hangers for like insurance sales. Oh, wow. Work for University of Phoenix for a while, but you know what he ended up doing? He moved back to Colorado Springs and he opened a church because that's all these guys know, right? Like, right. don't have he. That's what he said. He goes, "I have a degree in buy from Bible college. I have no advanced degrees, and guess what? That gets me no cachet in any part of the world except right. the Christian world, and that's all I've been trained to do. And to be honest with you, I'm really good yeah, at. Yeah, they do this. really know how to do that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you're taking away the one thing they know how to do well. And so they're going to eventually fall back into it because they just don't have a plan B and they don't really need a, a plan B to be completely honest with you. But you know what, honestly though, those are the, uh, the, the, the outliers, the average pastor right. gets fired and goes and sells insurance or works at the feed store or goes to home Depot. You know, Not they don't have those anymore. fallbacks because they don't have any, I had a pastor tell me one time, don't ever get an MDiv. Because the MDiv only trains you to do one thing, be a pastor. I should have got a degree in education and then been a pastor on the side. That way I had options. Dude was stuck. He was like 55 years old and stuck in a job that he did not want because he had no other options. And that's to me, that's super sad for his congregation and for him and his family because he's just unfulfilled in his life. How do you see that as different from nursing school? Same problem? I, yeah. Or is no, it different I mean, I think, with the spiritual element? The, the pro- yeah, I think the problem with being a pastor, though, and this is why I can never be a pastor full time, is I need results. Like I need, I need like outputs. I need to see like my thing be successful, whether it's you know retweets or clicks or you know journal pubs or you know like whatever it is, impact factor. Pastors, I mean, you might have a Sunday where you you know twenty percent of your congregation is gone. It's because there was a, a vacation going on or a festival or a fair, and people just didn't show up to church. But I'm going to go home that Sunday feeling like, what did I do wrong? You know, right. I didn't, I didn't do a good enough job last week. I must've messed up, but really it's something so idiosyncratic. Um, I, I just, that's, to me, that's torture. That's mental torture. I think a lot of pastors struggle through mental torture because we live in a culture, Christianity, Protestant Christianity is predicated on growth. And if you don't grow your church, you're a failure. Mm-hmm. Like that's as simple as it is in Protestant Christianity. And I think that kind of formula does not work in my life. And for a lot of pastors, they wish they could get out of that cycle, but their congregation wants that and they don't know anything else. Yeah, that's rough. <laughs> that is rough. And not the same with a, a nurse, I suppose, at least. Yeah, I, I feel bad for people that have any job where they feel trapped in it at all, though, you know? Just, mm-hmm. I mean, anybody that has a—it's just you make some choice at some point that you're going to go this way with your life, and then they're—I mean, then you're in it. I mean, yeah, that's— and, and you're, and you're- your your whole livelihood is dependent on if people like you or not. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's <laughs> yeah. why that's what you're saying. Like you can write a paper and people, you know, bash it on Twitter or social media, but but you can do that and know what you did and it's okay and you can continue writing papers. But if your church goes, No, you said Black Lives Matter, you're gone, mm-hmm. then you're gone. Yeah. Like you said, that's it. Wait. Second, how, is it not different for a podcaster or musician? It's very dependent on how uh, no, it's very similar like to our personalities yes. and how well we do. I mean, that's it, right? I know. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, are we I trapped mean, here? At least I do what I want to do. I don't know how to say it. I don't feel trapped because I do what I want to do. But on the other hand, I'm completely dependent on people liking what I say and do and sound <laughs> like and play. You know, I don't know. <laughs> you know what, Chris, uh, one time, I, always, I tell my students this. There's my one piece of advice for my students. I go, listen, being rich is not having a lot of money. It's having a lot of options. Mm -hmm. And my God, is that not true? Right? Like going to a job you go to because you love going to the job is such a joy 
that makes you thankful for people who have to go to work because they have to pay the bills. You know, they have to get up at right. six o'clock in the morning and drive through the snow and do a job they hate for eight hours and come home. And their joy doesn't begin until five o'clock at night. Like that is miserable. But if you can find a place where you, you, you know, have a lot of options, like I write papers. I don't have to write papers. I do podcasts. I don't have to do podcasts, right? Like mm-hmm. I don't do any of this stuff. All you gotta do is teach. I mean, that's what makes joy for me is if I want to work today, I, don't, I can work. If I don't want to work today, I don't have to work, right? People need to realize that pastors don't have that option sometimes. They have to preach. Right. Listen, preaching every Sunday sucks. It I is super it. hard, okay? It's the hardest thing I do is preach every single Sunday because I'm not that interesting, especially 52 times a year for 30 minutes at a whack, right? Like I cannot be, and sometimes I have what I call get through Sundays. You know, I'm just like, I'm up there just like, Oh, come on. 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Let's get this thing over with. Right. Because I can't be inspirational 52 weeks out of the year. Like that is misery, especially as your full-time job. And that's all that you're ranked on. And all that people care about is how you preach every Sunday. That's a misery, especially if it's Saturday night, it's 11 o'clock. You've had no inspiration. And in eight hours, you're going to have 300 people looking at you, asking to be entertained, educated, (laughs) and and encouraged. And you have none of those things in your head. Like that's a miserable place to be. And I, 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 I pray for every pastor out there who's been in that spot because I've been in that spot too. And it's miserable. It's psychologically miserable and it's physically miserable too. Ryan, you are the best. I love having you on the show so much. I'm going to say a few of those reasons. One is just you have that radical transparency bone. Um, You're authentic. You're talking about all the stuff you do and you get through Sundays. I love that. You're super uh, hyper and and doing all these things from preaching (laughs) to doing the data. You love the technical stuff and you're, you know, you're driven and you're honest and it's, it's just a blast uh, talking to you. Just love it so it's much. It's always fun. Thanks, guys. Always a pleasure being on the podcast. Get some good feedback from your audience. It's got a great audience out there. So can I plug? Is this yeah, yeah. Time? That's what I was getting ready to say. Yeah. What is it that you'd like people to do? Come to your church? Go to your school? <laughs> enroll in no, the, no, in the no, COVID don't, spreading don't either, den please. at <laughs> college or what? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, at Ryan Burge, R-Y-A-N-B-U-R-G-E. Tweet out graphs and charts. I don't. I don't. I don't call my Twitter up with my my musings about life. It's just all like data and data stuff. It's good stuff um, too. And you already admitted yeah. that you live and die by how many clicks and retweets you get. You're darn so, right. Yeah. I had a good <laughs> one yesterday. I got like 75 retweets and bounced all around. I got DMs from people. What was nice. it? What was the post? Uh, it was about how um, even conservative atheists are as racially resentful as conservative evangelicals are. Right? We think like atheists like are way more like woke and progressive and stuff. But if they call themselves conservative – they're just as racially resentful as a conservative evangelical is. So it's really the ideology that's doing more work than the religiosity thing. Wow. Right? So, I, and that's pretty, that to me, that's pretty revelatory because we always think atheists yeah. are woke and liberal. Yeah, listen, there's not a lot of like conservative atheists out there, but the ones who are, are look a lot like evangelicals. So, you know, it's it's the partisanship that's doing a lot of work there. That's so a, that did that's well. A, that's a good parsing of data there. Yeah. So find Ryan Burge on Twitter and go from there. Yeah, at Ryan Burge. Uh, at RyanBurge.net. Uh, and I write at religionandpublic.blog. It's our website. It really is what launched all this stuff to begin with. And I have a book coming out on March the 3rd of 2021. It's called The Nuns, Where They Came yeah. From, Who They Are, and Where They Are Going. It's about 30,000 words and about 45 graphs about the religiously unaffiliated in America trying to make sense of sociologically where they came from, what they look like. And then it's written for pastors a little bit. I'm talking about how to reach out to nuns and how to really take them for what they are. 
So that's coming out in March. Well, you have a tremendous that's amount awesome. of believability in my book, and I think in that of others. So keep yeah. keep that formula up. Just keep doing what you do. You seem to do it for the intrinsic value of teaching, preaching, tweeting, all of it. You do it for the right reasons. So yeah, it I feels very appreciate authentic. It. And and let's have if if you're down, man, we'd love to have you back several times before your book comes out, especially when your book comes is coming out too, just to promote it. Let's hope that the vaccine's out and I can go do you know publicity all over the world. Uh, that's what we're praying for at this point, because a lot of my friends yeah. wrote books and they got to sit at home and do, you know, video mm-hmm. things and they're not. Making oh, yeah. Or selling any books. So let's hope let's pray for COVID to be done by February. That's my prayer. I hope it is, too. All right, Ryan, I'm sure we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. So, well, Toby, you're right. Ryan never disappoints. No, he can't. <laughs> well, here's the thing. And this is why his Twitter's good, too. Even though he's a pastor, he's not telling you prescriptive information that's not his goal his goal is really oh look at this truth yeah oh look at this thing i found that's i just mined some truth yes. there and uh, check this out then you can decide on your own you can't you can't get mad at somebody if they're trying to find the truth even if you don't like the truth and that's that's where everybody nobody on earth no nobody in america likes the truth right now <laughs> this the worst enemy we have you don't like it on any side whatever you, you think no matter what the truth is our enemy and it's so much nicer on that other side where truth's kind of murky yeah. truth can maybe be whatever mm-hmm. you want it to be so when it gets hard and there's some lines drawn you know about hey this is what is actually happening in life or whatever it just it's hard to swallow that you can't i mean it's just way nicer to go i want to do this and i can find a way to make it seem true Mm-hmm. And so Ryan doesn't do that, but at the same time, you can't really get mad at somebody like that. And it, you go, "Ooh, look at this data." Mm. That's kind of cool. You're not talking about Ryan as much anymore. Now you're talking about the data. Yeah, that what you really, just really? said is a way too idealistically idealistic for me as somebody who often points out things that are interesting or true when people do oh, not no, want it doesn't to work hear out it. for you. Does there's it? a situation? There's a very famous saying called "kill the messenger," which pr- disproves yeah. your theory that nobody can get mad at you for telling the truth. No. Also, well, well, one of the most me... famous movie lines of all time is "You can't handle the truth for the same reason. <laughs> you can't. You don't want it, and you kill the motherfucker that gives it to you." That's my, been my experience most of my life, and probably well, Ryan's okay. too. So it sounds Notice nice, but it, it ain't true. Notice that it's your experience, and Ryan doesn't. Ryan doesn't go. Well, it's just the data, y'all. <laughs> no, I know. I'm, I'm just trying to tell yes, you. I, this is what it is. That's you know, I mean, yes. You, you I understand. are very hurt. You, th- th- I mean, you are Jeff Foxworthy of science. <laughs> if you're trying to do that, I mean, that, nobody nobody wants you giving science. I tips know. No, I'm a lot more obnoxious than Ryan. I, I I understand that, but I do have a somewhat of a kindred spirit with him and the fast talking and the thinking on the fly and just letting. Yeah, what? but he's he's less and less obnoxious. No one's been more hurt in their professional career. Most likely than us with our accents you know do you know how many times and you've heard it a million times too people walk up to me and after a show and i'm signing something talking to them they go like they look at me because i'm talking they go you you don't sound like that when you sing yeah and i what do you tell what does it matter and they can't believe that i'm i'm uh, some redneck or i'm just i mean like when we moved to seattle people literally said they thought that we were from australia yeah i mean that literally that happened and no chance anybody's going to take you as serious as if you imagine if you had a really nice British accent. Yeah, oh, you know how know. much better you explaining stuff would be. If I had I mean, good manners too, better. would be nice. If I was a British accent and I had manners and ability to oh do that, oh my god, that'd you'd be, be a billionaire. Instead, it's a, who's that dorky redneck coming in telling everybody how stuff works? Shut up, I know. beat it. I, I know. <laughs> 
<laughs> Every all, anybody you talk to, they see you coming. Oh God, oh, he's back. God, that dark oh, red. Lord, got to hear about neutrons <laughs> and all this bullshit and that motherfucker. <laughs> We get it. <laughs> we get it. Uh, uh, an atom's mostly empty. Okay. How, good God. <laughs> they just get pissed off at your facts. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> we get it. Anyway. All right. Let's get out of here. Join the BC Club. Uh, there's still time to join uh, for free, right? Yep. Or to pay and join, which is the, the real privilege is the, that you get to pay oh, and pay feel the, the satisfaction of you buy us a coffee a month or so. Yeah. I appreciate it, right. too. I'm I'm on basically at four coffees a day right now. Not you know I'm doing two in the morning, and then I usually do an iced coffee in the afternoon, and then before I go to do music after supper, I usually drink another coffee and get to it. So more well, people. I've been join thinking about this. If BC if you club. join joining the BC Club is the biggest fuck you to whoever you want to say fuck you to. Check this out. <laughs> think think about this. Uh, we're Christians. But we don't believe a lot of it. <laughs> we are gay affirming, get for gay marriage, but we're two white cisgender males. I mean, who, uh, I mean, we're meet, we're middle class. We're kind of conservative, but we're we're also on the liberal leaning. We're, I mean, anybody that you want to say fuck you, I'm sporting these people. You can do it if you join the BC Club. We got we got almost everything covered. Yeah, that's do, what I'm saying. So give us money to get back at whoever you want to get back at. It'll work. I promise it'll work. <laughs> Look who I support, Mom. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we'll see y'all later.